that. That was a blessing. And everybody else thanks you as well. So, we learned in Log College that our typical epistle, all throughout the New Testament, has a hinge verse. It's usually some place in the book where he shifts, where the writer shifts from what is true to what to do. Sometimes it's very obvious. You get to Ephesians, it's like, wow, it stares you in the face. Chapter 4, now I urge you, brothers, walk worthy of the calling which you've received. Well, he just got done with three chapters telling us our calling. And so now, here's how you should walk in a manner that matches it. Basically, now that you're in the family, this is how you should act. And it's fitting because you really are this. And so it makes sense. So most of these, Romans, it's chapter 12. It's a long ways, but in light of the mercies you have received, offer yourself a living sacrifice to God. So in light of all that he's done in Christ, declaring you righteous as a gift, giving you the Holy Spirit to lead you and make you holy, calling you as a non-Jew into the family of Jews, as it were. Now, after all these mercies, what's more fitting than to offer yourself freely to God? And so, this text has James's hinge verse in it. I believe it's here. Though scholars disagree, good men can say it's various places. I think it's here at verse 26 and 27, where James comes down to the basic question, what does genuine worship look like? The word is religious. It's a word hardly ever used in the New Testament because it actually speaks of outward worship, things we do on the outside. The New Testament is totally concerned with the heart. This text, though, says, okay, what's acceptable on the outside? And so it identifies it with a negative, it's not this, and a positive, it is this. Verse 26 is the negative, verse 27 is the positive. All throughout the New Testament, you usually have truth presented in that way, what it's not, what it is. And then at verse 1 of chapter 2, James launches into the rest of the book, where he describes the topics he just laid out in verses 26 and 27 which are, number one, the tongue. How we use the tongue. Number two, orphans and widows. How we care for the needy. Number three, unstained by the world. How we relate to the larger human society called the world. These three topics fill the rest of the book. Chapter 2 is how we treat the poor and needy. Chapter 3, how we use our tongue. Chapter 4, how we relate to the world. And then chapter 5 closes it up with be patient, persevere, and pray, which is how we open the letter. Persevere and pray. And so it seems to bookend it with these basic commands. You need to persevere and run the race with perseverance. You need to pray so that you receive what you need. And this is what you need to do. Watch your tongue, take care of the needy, and keep unstained by the world. Confirmation of this seems to be in the use of the, the title, The Lord Jesus Christ. James is an odd book in some regards. It's very practical, so it doesn't give you much doctrinal explanation. 
the name of Jesus is only mentioned twice. The first verse in the greeting and chapter 2, verse 1. Everything else is God, Father, Lord, no name of Jesus mentioned anywhere but these two places. So that seems to be confirmation to me that chapter 2 does launch then the explanation of the hinge verse in chapter 1, 26 and 27. The long and the short of it is, if we can understand verses 26 and 27, we actually have insight into the entire book. Almost like those little little like windows, those little peepholes that you see on a hotel door that you look through and you can see down the hallway. Verse 26 and 27 is like that. And you can see the book of James through the lens of this, these two verses. So the question in these two verses is, what is worship that is, is acceptable to God? You all are in a worship service. If you didn't, if you didn't know that, it feels like the first day of college where it's like, you're in the wrong room. You need to find another room. This is a worship service. Right here, we're called upon and have the opportunity to give praise to God. In Jesus Christ, every believer is a priest. We have direct access to God the Father through our high priest, Jesus, on the basis of his cross, his death on our behalf as the Lamb of God. And through faith alone, we stand in this grace and we can sing, praise, pray, intercede for each other. We have the privileges that were in the Old Testament reserved for just select few who could draw near to the tabernacle and only one who could go through the veil into the Holy of Holies and even then was smoke. That veil was ripped when Jesus died and we now have a new and living way. The whole priesthood has been set aside. There's no Levites anymore. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah and he's even resurrected and we know him no longer according to the flesh. A new humanity has begun and a new priest is reigning as king and we have access to him. Big, big things. So as a result, all you Christians can come together and offer up to God praises, sacrifices. Now what's interesting is sacrifices changed. We don't bring in lambs and bulls. There's no like pouring oatmeal, barley meal, on top of a burning animal and then pouring wine over it to create sweet-smelling smoke and incense mixed with the wine. And I mean, they did worship in a very different way. There's none of that now. It's very streamlined and simple according to the book of Hebrews. It's the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and it's doing good and sharing with others. Your vertical worship is to acknowledge that everything you have has been given freely by God. You didn't earn it. It's not a wage. It was given freely, and so the word for that is thank you. We say thanks. Now, in the Old Testament, even then, they weren't supposed to offer their sacrifices as if God was somehow needy. Psalm 50 says, Even if I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you. I happen to own a lot of cattle. God was not interested in their animals, and that's why like, he set up worship in that way. That was done because the cross hadn't happened and Jesus hadn't died for our sins, so it was all a picture 
of what was to come. A life has to be taken for you to be able to enter heaven. A divine life of infinite value had to be offered in your place so that your sins could be removed. Or as Charles Spurgeon once said, God wrote all your sins on a big piece of paper, slammed it into the hand of Jesus, and then nailed it to the cross while he's holding on to it. That is a perfect redemption. He bore that for us, and we bear it no longer. And so we have access to God through that payment. So, how much more then should Christians be characterized by thanksgiving? And how awful would it be for Christians to go around complaining? As if we have a right to complain. Has not God promised to turn all things together for our good? And if God did not hold back Jesus, but gave him up in our guilty place, is he going to withhold anything less? And so therefore, if we don't have something good presently, it's not because God is reluctant to give. He has posted once and for all time and demonstrated his love. I love you. The cross speaks it. And I don't even need to have an amen some days. I have enough demonstration in the cross alone that God loves me. And some days, that's all we have. This is not to minimize the pain we experience. There are some days that is all we have, but it is all we need to know he loves me. Praise the Lord for that. So, our offering to God is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now, here's the challenge. How many of us in the room offer to him with a heart and not just words? It was the pain of the prophets that there were hypocrites in the land of Israel. In Malachi, God said, oh, that somebody would shut the door. I don't want that worship anymore. In Isaiah, he says, you're lifting up hands that are bloody. In Amos, even though they love to do the worship thing, God says, I hate your sacrifice. I hate your festivals. I wish you would just stop. The reason is there was a disconnect between their life and their offering of worship. As Isaiah says in chapter 29, and Jesus quotes it in the Gospels, he said, this people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It accomplishes nothing. In fact, it actually repulses God and backfires. To come to God with no heart is to come to God and repulse him. It's to treat him the way I dare say, I am not a lady, but I can imagine what you ladies would think if your husband came to you and said, well, hey, it's anniversary. Here's your card. We're going to go out to eat. It's the dutiful thing to do. Here's birthday time. Here's your card again. Oh, here's a little gift. I know the minimum is about $55. I gave it to you. The ladies would go like, what? Keep it. I, you're disgusting me. <laughs> it's like, if, if you don't want to do this freely and gladly do this to me, I'd just say save the money. I could use the money actually in other ways. It has to be an expression of our heart. 
in a sense, every Sunday is like a birthday. We're supposed to be here. We're even commanded to assemble ourselves. But it's our opportunity like a husband. Do I take the advantage of the university, of the anniversary or the, the birthday and pour my heart into it? We have scripted words even. We're not a liturgical church like we read. We could have responsive readings and things. It's in the back of our hymnal, I suppose. But, you know, and yet when we sing songs, those are scripted words. I didn't write those words. You didn't write those words. But we each have a choice whether we bring our heart into it, don't we? Do I bring my heart before you or do I keep it at home? Do I bring my heart or am I preoccupied with my problems or my projects I hope to get to or the friends after service? You follow? So we want to bring our heart. We don't want vain worship. And then we want to do good and share with others. For such sacrifices, Hebrews says, God is well pleased. This, these two realms are in verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 is speech. And verse 27 is deeds. And there's only two ways I can know your heart and you can know mine. I got to say something and I got to do something. If I keep it bottled up, you're left guessing. What's going on? What does he think? What does he feel? I don't know because it's inside. So out of the heart comes speech. Out of the heart comes actions. So let me just touch on then the negative and then the positive and then the why we should worship in this way. So here's the what, the what we do, and then we'll touch on the why. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. To bridle the tongue, James has wonderful images, by the way. I think he was a verbal preacher. He creates word pictures all the time. It's likely that somebody told him, hey, James, this is great stuff. I think you should write it down. Preachers have that from time to time. People tell them that. And so... It seems to be power-packed, move from subject to subject, have a lot of verbal images that people can just grab with their mind. And so the image here is bridling like a horse, controlling and directing. Now think of your tongue as a wild animal. James chapter 3 is going to come and say that man has tamed every animal. And if we don't believe that, hop on YouTube sometime and see exotic pets. They're weird. There's people out there, all sorts of creatures. Now, how well they tame them may be seen in due time. Whether they survive or not, I don't know, but we'll see. So the tongue is like this exotic animal, wild and ferocious, and you need to tame it. But James chapter 3 says, who can tame it? Who can bridle his tongue? A man that, if he doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. And so it's like, this is a beast inside my mouth. Now feel your beast right now. Just move it around. Touch the top of your, touch, touch your teeth. Just move that beast around in there. That little bugger needs to be tamed. It needs to be bridled and held in and then moved this way or that way. Now, this is where we need to be very cautious about judging our neighbor, okay? 
because it is very likely that either you or somebody in your near kin or circle of relations has an extremely ferocious and violent beast in their mouth that really needs to be tamed and they really struggle to rein it in. And you might happen to have a little more tame, docile beast in your mouth. And so you look at this individual and say, there is no way that they can be a Christian. I mean, did you hear what came out of so-and-so's mouth recently? ay 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 Man, the paint came off the wall. I can't believe it. And hopefully, if you pointed it out, they would feel totally shamed. You know, like, oh, ah, you are so right. As Martin Luther said before the entire Western world, my tongue has not been in accordance with my profession. And everybody says, amen. He had a very wild tongue in his mouth, and it was not appropriate at times. He let it go too freely. And so, please, if you are one of those with the wild tongue, know this, you must rein it in. If you don't rein it in, this text says you are deceiving yourself. You are not a Christian. It's not perfection. Chapter 3 forbids that. I'm talking about the effort in faith due to being born again, which is described in verses 18 and 19. That we, verses 17 and 18, that we were brought forth by the Father of lights. He commanded by the word of truth and gave us life. With that life now, Christian, rein that tongue in and feel ashamed when you let it go freely because at times it feels really good to just let it go. Oh, feel ashamed for that and resolve before the Lord to bring it in. It needs to be bridled. But then the rest of you who don't have as much trouble with your tongue, please be gracious and pray for those who have trouble with their tongue. Because it reminds me of parents who have two little darlings that they dress up so prettily and all they need to do is just have us lowering of the eyebrows and, you know, they just obey. And then they look over here at those ruffian rascals that they're trying to raise over in that household and go, I don't know how you can raise, what kind of parenting do you do? And the mom's over there like, you don't know how many spankings my son gets. My daughter gets, I mean, this child is so, oh, but if you just look at them, they'll be fine. I had a family in Indiana that had two girls that were like that. And then they adopted. And they totally repented of any time that they judged any other family. So please, let's be gracious to one another. Let's pray for each other and all strive together to loose to bridle and rein our tongue in the right direction. I might even add this other added word, just a little. Some of you have a tongue that likes to sit down on the job like a stubborn mule and doesn't want to say anything. Your tongue might need to be bridled like, get up. You need to say something now and do something. And so that may be how your tongue needs to be controlled and directed. So please note, again, if anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This is self-deception. This person's religion is worthless. That's a scary verse, if I'm not bridling my tongue. And so may the Lord grant us that to take that to heart. Now let's go to the positive side. The positive side. What, what is positive worship? What does that look like? Well, 
Notice the, the sacrifice words here. It's pure. It's undefiled. We're keeping ourselves unstained. In the Old Testament, the value of the sacrifice was not just the thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you could just offer your leftovers. In Malachi chapter 1, God says, hey, isn't that lame and blind? It's like, well, yes. Offer that to your governor and see if he likes that. Am I not a great king? So it's like, the way we treat God when it comes to money sometimes is that we'll give our government boatloads of money because it's required of us and we get punished if not. But with God, eh, it's just freely given. Nobody goes after us. Nobody knows. And so we're like, just the bare minimum, a little bit of token, and then we move on. It's like Malachi chapter 1 would say, I, I noticed that how you're treating me as an expression of your heart. There's not much value here being expressed. And so, the outward gift is important. I can't just offer to God leftovers. It's first and best, as Abel did. But I can't just offer excellent stuff and have unclean hands. It's both the cleanliness of the hands and the cleanliness of the offering. I have to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and then keep myself unstained by the world, and then I can offer up to God sacrifices that he's pleased with and offered to my neighbor, sacrifice. So the unstained by the world is part of the worship language of this. It is necessary. And so if we are totally being stained, think dirtied, and we are dirty by continual mucking around in the world, then let us repent this morning, go to the fountain of the blood of Christ, be cleansed, be set apart fresh for God's service and say, Lord, cleanse my hands. I want to offer to you and to other sacrifices that are pleasing. Once that occurs, this is pure and undefiled religion to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This morning we have tables set out in the, in the gym for like foster care, for the care of the preborn, through helping hands, for end-of-life care ministries, for jail ministry and how to help those that just come out of jail, for people who are genuinely in need and don't have the, the connections or the resources to make that next step. These mercy ministries, we want to be supported and we see in this text the importance of such things. It's not just a matter of throwing a few dollars in the plate or putting it in an envelope. It's a matter of being hard involved with the lives of people, especially those that he puts right in front of us. And so pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is to take care of the, the orphans, the fatherless, to take care of the widows, the husbandless in their time of need, which in that society put them in destitution. In our society, it may be a foreigner. It may be somebody who got an emergency, a crisis. It may be somebody due to medical reasons. It may be a variety of different things, but all of a sudden they are no longer able to care for themselves. And the, the Father in heaven looks at us and says, what about you? What about you? Will you care for such a one? 
When I was preparing for this message, my mind went to Deuteronomy, where God spoke similar things about the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, saying, you were slaves in Egypt. Won't you freely care for those who are now in bondage? Now, we could go spiritual with that and be right. Every one of us has been a slave to sin. Jesus didn't have to die, and he redeemed us at great cost. That alone ought to move us. But I could even go farther, even beyond if you're born again or not born again. You were born once. Can you imagine what it was like to be two days old, three days old, and how utterly helpless you and I were in that case? in that state. Isn't that amazing? That I, right now, who am standing in front of you, you who are sitting here, who can make decisions for ourselves, who actually can stand up for our rights and push back, that we were once, every one of us in this room, without exception, in such helpless condition that we could not advocate for ourselves, we couldn't even keep ourselves alive Protect or provide for ourselves. We are utterly at the dependence on others and on a sovereign God who oversaw our lives in that helpless state. And it may be that you and I end up in that state again someday in which we will not be able to advocate, not be able to defend, not be able to provide, and we will be utterly helpless again. And so if we look at it just on a mere human level, you freely you have been given, freely, you know, freely you've received, freely give. Is there not motivation for us? And then when we add on top of it how our God has so loved us, is there not reason then to say, surely there's somebody in my life that I could grab and point to and say, Lord, let me be a means in your name of blessing them. In the book of Ruth, we see an example of two widows being cared for. We often think of the one, Naomi. She's an older lady. She grew up in Bethlehem, married Elimelech, and there was no bread in the house of bread, ironically. And so they went to Moab and sojourned there for a while as foreigners. She had two sons. The husband died, the sons remarried. Hopefully the family line will increase, but then the sons died. In that day, three widows is not the kind of situation you want to be in. And so being the wise woman she, was, she is, she looks at her daughters-in-law and she says, you need to go back home. You need to go to Moab and you need to find a husband and settle down. I know you'll be taken care of. You'll be fine. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me and I'm going back to Israel alone. Oh no, we won't leave you, they both say. And so they plead with her, and she then urges strongly, look, are you going to find a husband with me? Even if I'm married, had a son, are you going to wait until their marriageable age? No, my daughters, no, go back. And one did. Reasonable. Totally makes sense to us. That's where the prospects of marriage are. That's where my future is. That's where provision is. I'll go back. Makes sense. But the one, Ruth, 
the text says, clung to Naomi. That's an echo of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. She's giving her mother-in-law the same commitment that she would marriage. She's not marrying her mother-in-law. That's only a man and a woman. It's not that, but it's the same level of commitment. In the context, it's so clear. She's being urged, go back and find a husband. And Ruth goes, I'm not going back to find a husband. I'm going to give you the kind of commitment that a husband would receive. And she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die. So help me God. If something happens that separates you and me even in death, she takes an oath that harm would come to her. That's beyond even a marriage. In marriage, you're released at death. You can go with somebody else and live somewhere else. Ruth so pushed away marriage that she made that commitment. And so Naomi's like, okay. And she goes back to Bethlehem and says, I'm here all alone. And Ruth, I can imagine, has to ignore that and go, well, I'm here with you whether you want me to be here or not. Now, do you see what the kind of commitment is? Do you see what it's like to be committed to the poor and the needy, to the helpless, the orphan, and the widow? It's not just a matter of like, oh, I asked, and they said I didn't need help. And so, okay, and I go back to doing my thing. There's something persistent about genuine loving kindness, the word that's used in Ruth. It's a freely given love. It goes farther than what's required, more than the bare minimum. It sees the need and then goes beyond even what's required as Ruth went beyond the commitment of marriage. And so chapter 2 opens up with them in Bethlehem. Ruth gets permission to go out and glean, which is what the poor would do, pick up the scraps in the field. And the Bible winks at you and goes, and she happened to come across the field of Boaz. How lucky! The guy is rich, and he's a member of the family. Oh, what luck. It actually uses the word luck, but winks at you. And so, Boaz is there greeting his workers in the name of the Lord. He's a godly man, sees Ruth, tells the workers, don't harm her, tells the women, let her follow you, tells the women who are gathering up the sheaves, throw some extra down. Brings her over at noon, has some of his own food given to her. And she's like, why am I finding favor in your sight? And he says, it's because I've heard about you and the freely given love, the loving kindness you have shown to your mother-in-law, Naomi. And so now Boaz is expressing the loving kindness of God that Ruth knew about and trusted in when she took refuge under God's wings, that God is going to be there for me. God's not going to let this be fall to the ground. I'm going to lay myself out and God's going to provide. How different than the calculating, making sure all the ends are going to meet. And so, story moves on. Barley harvest is done, wheat harvest begins. And Naomi gets the idea. I think you should marry Boaz. Something about older women sometimes like to be matchmakers. I don't think this is romance, though, because Boaz is in the older generation where Naomi's husband was and even says, you didn't go after younger men. 
This is a marriage strictly for function. This is to redeem the whole family out of poverty. The word used is redemption, to pull them out of debt. There's no man to bring a next generation. And so Ruth, you need to marry this extended relation of the family so the family line continues. There's a provider in the family. And so we have our needs met. Ruth does it. Boaz agrees, but Boaz says, there's another man who's closer than me, who has the right of redemption I don't have. So without any delay, he gets the elders of the city together, like the courthouse, seats them in a circle, and calls over the man. And the text calls him Poloni Almoni, which is like phony baloney, fuzzy wuzzy. It is making fun of this man. That's not his name. He is left nameless. Even worse, he is shamed. And the reason is because he shows up and uh, Boaz goes, hey, our brother Elimelech, his widow Naomi is selling the land and you have first dibs. And the man goes, I'll take it. And then Boaz goes, but on the day you get the land, you also get Ruth the Moabite and you're going to raise up kin for our brother's name, so that that line can continue. And the man goes, this might jeopardize my own belongings. I can't do it. And he's shamed with the sandal being taken off, which in Deuteronomy is a sign of shame. Like, I can't touch that land. Put a foot on it. I give up my right of redemption. And so Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, God visits, second time in the book, God gives, and a boy is born, his name is Obed, and Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. And you have just heard the birth story of David. No miracle. 100-year-old Abraham, 90-year-old Sarah having a son. No physical miracle. But you have just heard a moral miracle. Nobody acts like that. That was an outstanding demonstration of loyal love. Freely given, call it grace. That Boaz, Ruth showed it to widow Naomi. Then Boaz showed it to widow Ruth. And both of them together, a male and a female, showed how great is the power of loving kindness. God says in that book that you and I as individuals, if we would loyally give ourselves freely, not just to the bare minimum, but to the extreme, and give ourselves away in love to others, God uses that as an opportunity of public redemption. A royal public king David came through that very small family's private act. What might God do through your family? What might God do through this church if we would act in such a way? Only God knows. But then there's the foil. There's Orpah, the woman, who contrasts with Ruth. And there's Poloni Almoni, who contrasts with Boaz. Both of these individuals are respected in churches. Because they acted reasonably. They did what was reasonable. Nobody would expect you to lay yourself out and, and jeopardize your property. Nobody would expect you to like forfeit marriage. 
let alone have your marriage partner then decided by an old lady, not even your generation. That's unreasonable. Nobody would do that. And so it's often in counsel. Pastors have people that come to them in this kind of unreasonable situation. Well, there's this need. And like, okay, we're supposed to meet the need, but it would, it would cause this harm and it would do this damage to me. And, and they're looking for a pastor validation to go, well, yeah, that would be unreasonable. It's off the hook. Yeah, that wouldn't be expected. If a pastor is honest with the text, he's going to shame the individual for thinking so much about himself or herself and say, look, is there not opportunity to do good, to be lavish, to be free here? There's a widow. There's an orphan. Go the, don't just do the mile required. Go the extra mile. It's that kind of spirit that our Savior exhibited towards us, Right? He didn't just save us and pay for our sins and go, okay, now you're on your own. He filled us with the Spirit, sealed us for eternal life, and made us sons and daughters of the King of the Father in heaven. There is an unreasonable, you might say, lavishment given upon us as sinners, now forgiven in Christ. So wow, the opportunity for us to do good is before us. The companion to this book is Jesus' sermon on the mount. And it tells us two, two ways in which we will do good but come up short. And people come up short. I come up short. I remember one time in Indiana, southern Indiana, I was visiting this old man named Frank all the way to death. Committed, telling him the gospel. There at his deathbed in the hospital basically still telling him about Jesus, only to find out that very same day, down the hall was another man that I used to visit and ceased visiting and was totally unaware that he was alone in a hospital bed dying, perhaps without Jesus, and I could have just walked a matter of feet and shared with him Christ. not one of us in this room that falls short in these ways that can't just step away and a tear comes down our eyes and we go, Lord, I failed that person in their time of need. Thank God there's the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all sins as we confess it. He's faithful and righteous. He does so. Let's start fresh today. Let's look around us today and be open today. Who's in our circle? Who's in need around us? And go, God, make use of me to your glory. But the song of, or Sermon on the Mount tells us two ways are tempting. People will love and come up short if, number one, they're doing their deeds of rightness to be seen by others. We will do what is right and do the deed for the widow, the orphan, if we know others expected of us and we will look bad if we don't. That's the honest truth. And the challenge is we will fail to be a Ruth and fail to be a Boaz if our motivation does not rise higher than how we look. Our Father in heaven is watching us. Number two, the second way we come up short is if we only do it for those that will benefit us. Jesus said sinners love those who love them. Sinners do good to those who do good them. Sinners lend to those from whom they expect to be returned. But you, love your enemies. Do good. 
Lend to those from whom you do not expect back. And be like your Father in heaven, the Most High, who is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's an amazing statement. Be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful, Luke 6 says. If we go the distance and we go beyond what people deserve and go beyond what people even need, not just we meet needs as a minimum, but go beyond it and lavish them and give them a name and adopt them into our family and raise them up and send them out into the world and commit ourselves to the nth degree, that looks like our Father in heaven who chapter 1 of James says adopted us, made us his children and put his nature in us. God calls him the Father twice in chapter 1. One is in verse 27, the verse I'm at, but the other one is in verse 17, the Father of lights. And the echo in verse 27 brings to mind the act of being born again in verse 17 and 18. If you and I are born of God, it is not due to the will of man or the will of the flesh. It is not due to you and I making a decision. John 1.13 says, we were not seeking him when he sought us. James says it is by his will, by his choice, his choosing that he brought us forth. He looked at our need and made a choice to step into it. He's called the father of lights because he created the greater light and the lesser light and all the stars. And yet they vary incessantly in their motions. And he doesn't change a bit. He is steadfast, immovable, and his son Jesus is the light of the world. And that source looked at your darkness and as he said in the chaos of Genesis 1, let there be light, he looked at the chaos and emptiness and formlessness of your life and said, let there be light. And he spoke into your life and he brought you to Jesus. He opened your eyes and he gave you life freely because of what Jesus did. Are you now going to look at a similar darkness, a similar need, and echo that grace? in the lives of others and say, as I have received freely, so now I give freely. May you, O Father of light, shine into this darkness because it is chaos. There is no order. It is empty. There's no form here. It is just a mess and it's dark. Oh God, please shine into this need. Amen? May the, Lord, may the Lord Jesus Christ do that for us. He has done so much for us. May we be merciful even as he is merciful. And may he then be thanked by another pair of lips that have been touched by the grace of God and pulled out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light so that the praise of our God and the acceptable worship of lips that give thanks and hands that share spreads and spreads and spreads for the praise of God and the filling of the earth with his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh God, you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of worship. And we have heard this morning how worship is offered acceptably to you. Oh Lord, 
Grant us to be first unstained by the world. If there's changes and choices and we need to come out of the dirt and out of the dark, let it be, Lord. Jesus is a strong redeemer and the payment has been made. Guilt and shame don't need to keep us back. And then, O oh God, grant our lips, our tongue to be bridled that we would no longer curse others while we praise you even though these others that we curse were made in your image. How unfitting and inconsistent. Grant us, Lord, to be those who bless those who persecute us, bless those who curse us, and pray for those who persecute us. And then let our hands meet pressing needs, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the disabled, the broken, Lord, make use of us, make use of our church, all for the glory of Jesus, who alone made the choice from the house of David to enter our darkness, show loving kindness, and bring redemption and freedom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.